I'm Jason. And I'm Gary. And we're the uh, Portland Timbers. We talk a little bit about uh, Portland Timbers soccer. Brewing. And uh, whatever whatever else we want. Yeah. yeah. Whatever Skiing, may come up. Coffee, chicks, dudes. <laughs> Probably not so much on the dudes. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. How you doing, buddy? Pretty good. That uh, beer we're tasting, though, has got... <laughs> Got some barrel age kick to it. I haven't had a sip yet, so this is a uh, 2017 Bourbon County, the original by Goose Island. It's a signature bottle, and uh, it is something. It's a Bourbon County barley wine ale by Goose Island, and it's uh, from our buddy Andy. Thanks, Andy. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, it's it's definitely barrel aged, um, and that's about all I get off of it is the bourbon barrel aged taste to it. Yeah, it's got it's a little sweet back end on it. Definitely the barley wine feel to uh, it. Yeah, very definitely. But good. Well, how's life? Yeah, it's life. It's life. It's life. So uh, let's see what do we got going here. Timbers just played. We just finished that bad boy up. Yeah, another disappointing loss. Yeah. Debbie said, at least they looked better. Well, in parts they did, but uh, they just loved to seem to give the ball away in the midfield way too much. Yeah. Um, And I think you look at the possession numbers, and that that really echoed that. I think it was, what, 80% uh, possession for L.A.? Well, the goal that we scored, the one and only goal, was very pretty, and it actually was off of hard work and a lot of one tiki talk type uh, type plays there. You that beer? Yeah. Yeah. It's strong. Um, but short of that, there just wasn't a lot of organized offense. No, there wasn't. There was. We were missing that whole transition piece from the, the back line to the front and anything else. Again, it was giveaways in the middle, or there was just... Just, just total disconjuncted. Well, let's see who got yellows. Uh, Dielna got a yellow. <laughs> there was a lot of yellows. Dielna like barely made any contact and got a yellow. He's like heading the ball. Ibra steps in front of him as he's heading the ball, and that's a penalty and a yellow. What else? There's uh, other yellows there. Uh, I'm trying to remember who all got them. Char didn't get a yellow. Um, which was surprising. Um, there were... Valeri got a yellow. Plays that were done on Char that should have been either red or yellow and weren't. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there was there was tons of cards thrown in that game. What about Ibra's hands to the face? Yeah, I don't get that. how that was not a red card automatic. I just don't get it. Or Alessandrini doing a headbutt towards Blanco. Yep, that should have been on a red... <laughs> But it, it didn't even get a penalty. Neither of them did. Yeah. Neither I mean, of them didn't even get a look. Absolutely nothing. So. So. Oh, well. That's what happens when you go to Hollywood and you play the stars. You don't get all the calls. You can't beat the sexies. So, well, um, yeah, I don't know what they need to do. They need nine. They need something different in the front or in the middle. Um, and I don't necessarily know what that is. Uh, Maria played. He looked okay. He didn't look above his shoes. He's trying to figure out where he fits in, you can tell. Right. Uh, most of the goals were coming from his side, interestingly enough. Um, but I think that's just part of him trying to figure out, uh, again, what does the line do? What's the press look like? When do I need to get back? Who can provide cover for me? I mean, all that stuff. So Yeah, and I think it's interesting tonight. We saw a big shift in the, the way the lineup was done, uh, the formation. Some of the subs didn't seem to make sense to us uh, when they were made and who they were made for. Right. Um, so I think right now there's still just a whole lot of this moving of chess pieces to find out who fits where. Uh, I don't think you can really be doing that this late in the season. Uh as far as the early part of the season, because with the format change for playoffs, you need every point. No, absolutely. You need every point. And they made it a big thing on the broadcast to talk about, well, when they go back home and they get all these games, you could be like D.C. United last year. 
except that it's a different format. The playoffs totally are coming different. earlier. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's just going to be one of those weird, wonky years. I don't think the half season uh, adding a DP like Seattle's done the last several years and then making a run is the same because, again, it's a totally different style setup with the playoffs. So. Right. Completely different. But, so we'll see how it shakes out. Um, let's see. Aspria. He didn't play tonight. Didn't even get a call out. And that's after his bicycle kick. Yeah, crazy. Yeah. USL bicycle kick by Aspria. Yeah. Some of the other podcasts are going nuts over it. They've wanted to see a bicycle <laughs> kick for a while. And, uh, but, you know, I think USL is more Aspria style. Not necessarily MLS where he hasn't proven to be... Consistent. Consistent. Yeah. Right. I mean, he can score in the playoffs, but... And so I kind of wonder, is some of that uh, mental, right? It almost has to be. I mean, I mean, he's proved he can score in big moments, but he's just not doing it consistently during the regular season. Right, and when he knows he's better than the rest of the players out there, like USL, yeah, he, he starts no pulling problem. off sexy moves like a bicycle kick. Yeah. But he just shits the bed during the regular season and can't uh, put it together, so... I don't know. Weird stuff from Aspria. So then how much of that is mental and how much of it is actual talent matchup? Yeah, well, that's a good question. Right? Is it mental or is it actually talent matchup? Right. Or is it a blend of two? I don't know. But I would say it's not a talent matchup because he does it in the playoffs. Now, that's he a very good up. point. Yeah. yeah. So he can put his shit together when like the games are on the line. Right. But like a regular season game when he's trying to fight for playing time, or worse yet, he's won the job, but then just doesn't produce. Doesn't produce. Right? Yeah. So, I don't know. Weird stuff, man. He's like, uh, he's an enigma. <laughs> the enigma. enigma. So, uh, let's see. Beers. How's, uh, how's your homebrew doing, dude? Uh, it is bottle conditioning right now. So you got an IPA that's in the bottle, and it's bottle conditioning. conditioning yes. Uh, it's just sitting at about 67, 68 degrees, um, doing the carbonation and just sitting there. What does bottle conditioning mean for the listeners? So bottle conditioning is when you take whatever it is, the beer that you had, um, and you bottle it. And in my case, I put priming and sugar in to try and get carbonation out of it. Right. Um, and then you store it. Theoretically, you should be storing it at the same temperatures you fermented at. Right. Uh, to do a bottle condition. So I bottled or fermented right at that 67 uh, degree range. So my house is actually 67 degrees. So I just put them under the sink. Um, no heat, no chill, nothing else going on. It just keeps it at that nice constant temperature. And then your bottles actually condition, and the remaining yeast in there eat whatever sugar you added to that to create your carbonation. Um, that takes anywhere from two to four weeks, uh, especially when you've got it at you know 67 degrees. It's going to take longer for that carbon dioxide to, to or not carbon dioxide, yeah. No. CO2. Uh, yeah. CO2, yeah. To reabsorb back into that beer um, so that, that you've got the carbonation you need. Um, and that's bottle condition. Yeah. So, perfect segue. So, you and I yesterday took off, headed to Long Brewing. You uh, met with Paul, I guess, on the phone slash online, set up a private tasting slash uh, interview session. Yeah, it was all online. There wasn't any contact with him at all. It was all done by email. So Paul's out in Newburgh, owns Long Brewing, uh, is kind of doing my dream where he like took his huge garage and turned it into a brewery, like a (laughs) legit brewery. It's an awesome. So it's not like a separate facility. Like he walks outside, walks down the driveway, goes into his garage, um, and guess what? He's in his brewery. He's in the brewery. And uh, there's a huge decal on the front window that establishes this as Long's Brewing. Yep. Drainage, steam-fired brewing. Yeah, it's all steam-driven and gravity-fed. Yeah, so pretty cool stuff. Um, but Big we, walk-in cooler. Yeah, huge walk-in cooler. 
And then when you uh, take a tour of that brewery, there's just a ton of stuff that he's built, like the Bottle Capper 2.0. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and his whole system, he designed it. He designed um, it. He built most of it. And then had had the manufacturer do it. Um, he's got an engineering background, so that should tell you a lot right there. But uh, um, the interview itself, he goes into more detail um, and, and really gets into kind of the nuts and bolts of, of his of his brewery and, and his business idea um, and, and just how he does things. So let's give the interview a listen, and then we'll come back and kind of recap that. And uh, maybe we finish this barley one by then. Yeah. Brutal. Paul from Long Brewing. All right, Jason from the Timber is live here from uh, Long Brewing, and I'm here with Gary. Um, and we have the fortunate opportunity to get to tour Long Brewing and learn a little bit about uh, what's going on here. So... Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for uh, having us out. So what can you tell us about Long Brewing? When did you start? How was it founded? Oh gosh, well, I kind of retired from high tech about 19 years ago, and I had brewed a batch of beer back in the 80s. I thought, gosh, that's pretty good stuff. If I ever had time, I'd like to try that again. Well, I was always a workaholic, so I never had time. (laughs) So once I retired, I went, huh, I've got some time. (laughs) So silly me, I started brewing and started doing well, and getting all these ribbons and stuff and you know it's a lot of work and I thought gosh you know if I'm going to do this maybe I can come up with a business model and maybe even make money and uh, so I actually went commercial 10 years ago this year. Wow congratulations. Happy anniversary. 10 years yeah. yeah. So lots of lots of blue sitting up there lots of uh, metals that I see I mean what's the oldest metal slash ribbon you've got up there? Uh, there should be something clear back to about 2000, 2001, something like that. Wow, fantastic. pretty lucky right out of the chute. So, <laughs> so home brewer right off the bat? I mean, Yeah, I started home brewing, um, you know, like I said, about 18, 19 years ago, I guess. Um, didn't go commercial for you know quite a few years, so 10 years ago. So I guess it was a home brewer for almost nine years. Um, won the Nkasi Award in 2005, and that kind of motivated me to, well, you know, I seem to be doing pretty well. Let's see if we can do anything with it. What did you uh, win the Nankasi with? Uh, that was Colch and Vienna Lager. Okay. So I was lucky. Only two beers to win the Nankasi. It, it got tougher after that. Oh, I'm sure. But uh, those, to me, are, are two really delicate, subtle beers, so that was that was pretty pleasing to, to win with those two. Well, that, I mean, that's kind of the motto of the podcast that we consistently talk about is that you can't hide anything within a Pilsner, within a Colch. I mean, it's straightforward. You get what you get. And uh, I mean, stouts and IPAs, and you can kind of mask some of the things behind that are going on, some of the impurities that are going on in those. I try to make really, really clean beers. Uh, My business model is pretty unique. Um, I have the luxury of of not having to compromise on anything. That's the name of my business model, no compromise. So that sets the tone. You know, you ask a question, am I compromising? Don't do it. (laughs) So I get to buy the best malts in the world. I use all whole hops. My IPA hops come right from the grower's drying pile. We vacuum pack and freeze them. We get multiple fields of the same hop because they're crazy different. Mm. Um, the right yeast for every beer style, natural carbonation, long lagering times, anything I can think of to try and make the best beer possible. Yeah, we, I mean, literally, I think the first beer that I had of yours was Kolsch. Ah. Super, super clean, a little bit of biscuit, I mean, fantastic beer, so, um, and again, that's, that's how I found you guys, and I was like, man, I gotta go see Paul and see what's going on at Long there, so. Yeah, I love that beer. So, so when you're, you're talking about the the business model. And getting everything set up, what were some of the pitfalls that you encountered um, along the way, if any? And then, how would you avoid those, or or talk somebody through that might be interested in, in getting into business? How to avoid some of those, those pitfalls? Um, I was fairly lucky. Uh, this was an existing use building, and so that was made life a lot easier. And Yamhill County was really, really good at working with me to, to get my licensing. We're, we're helping one of our hop brewers out in St. Paul, and boy, here in uh, Marin County, lots, lots of hoops, <laughs> things, things you would never imagine. So it, it really depends on location. Okay. Um, in terms of going from home brewing to, you know, this is still a small system. It's a three and a half brewery designed and have built. I didn't have to change recipes much. I just gave them. A lot of people say when you go commercial, you have to really 
redesign your, your beers and right. not so much. I was lucky. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fantastic. So what can you tell us about the, so you said three barrel system. Yeah, it's three and a half, almost four really. Okay, what can you tell us about who built it? Was it custom? Uh, yeah, it was custom. Uh, like I said, I got to design it. So as you can see, it fits exactly where I want it to and valves are where I want them. And so that's really nice. Practical fusion. Um, Colin was, I think he'd done one or two systems prior to this and does a really nice job. Good guy. So I'm real pleased with it. Um, kind of like a winery. Uh, I do gravity as much as I can. Uh, I don't use pumps other than peristaltic pump. Try to be, you know, I, I buy the best malt in the world. I like to keep it that way. Mm -hmm. So um, peristaltic and the fermenter, and after that, it's all movement pressure. Wow. Okay. So I'll try to be gentle. Um, you know, long secondaries, long lagering times. Just you know, trying to make good, clean, well balanced beers. So, using glycol to cool? Yep. Are you, are you? Yeah, these are glycol. Um, secondary, it literally rolls into the walk-in. Oh, it does it really? Okay. <laughs> Not easily, but it does. <laughs> yeah, I see the casters there. Yeah. It's a little rustling Especially full up, right? Not, not, not real scale, but, but it works. Obviously, it works pretty well. Great. So you are known, I mean, for really what about a half dozen different beers is what you're doing consistently. I'm looking at the wall yeah, here. I consistently make uh, these eight beers, and I've okay. done Pinot Barrel Aging on the Porter and the Heavy. Oh, really? Uh, which really works well. I wish I had more room to do it because, gosh, they just work so well together. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still a big wine guy. Yeah. In fact, I spent 50 years wine tasting to make beer the way I do. Um, you know, you think about the, the aromas, the flavors, the layers, the balance, you know, Having an engineering and chemistry background, you can pull it off. Right. Usually. Right. Usually. So, right. There's always so that's fine. So I, I belong to doing DVO down the way with uh, Bruno, and then like an Archer. So we're big wine people too. Mm -hmm. Trying to get this guy into a little bit more wine. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, a huge amount of crossover, right? But when I go make wine, it's nothing like the beer that I make, right? Yeah. So, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's truly a difference between making wine and making beer. The winemakers say that uh, the wine's made in the field and you can only yeah. screw it up from there. Yeah, right. Um, brewing, the good news is you have lots and lots of choices. Bad news is you have lots and lots of choices. Yeah, absolutely. Right. A lot of places where it can just go wrong. Uh, you know, to me, you know, being, being a, I guess, an animal engineer, um, try to pay attention to everything because it seems like everything matters. It really does. Good segue for your question on mistakes there, Gary. From the homebrewer standpoint, the, the new guys that are just getting into it, and some of the guys have been in for for a while, there's a lot of mistakes that get made. What are some of those mistakes that you know of that you've been able to avoid? Uh, one, with your background, um, but then two, just knowing your business plan and your process of more patience. How does that all play out into to avoiding a lot of those mistakes? Um, I judge a fair amount and. The flaws that I typically run into have to do with sanitation. You know, you get some infection or you have some oxidation or you didn't control your temperatures and your yeast was not happy. If the yeast isn't happy, you're not going to be happy. I'm, I'm a yeast farmer. I mean, that's my job is to keep them happy. <laughs> and when I use that many different yeasts, it's a real pain. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, temperature control is, is much harder for a home brewer, but I, I, you know, I tell you, home brewers can make some fantastic beer. You know, I, I don't want to scare them off. I mean, yes, there's a lot of ways to foul it up, but you can make some really good beer, and it's not, not that hard. You know, you just got to pay attention to some cleanliness. Or go ahead and do your full secondary for, you know, diacetyl rest. Uh, once it's beer, it does not want to see oxygen, not one bit. So and that's when people rack, right, ferment buckets, you know, go right past that. Go to a glass fermenter or, you know, a stainless fermenter or something. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like the, like the key piece that you just brought up was oxidation. Um, so for those new guys that are getting into it or the guys that have been doing it and are still making those mistakes, how do you know when your fermentation is done? And it's at that key piece, like you just said, when it's beer, it's beer, and you don't want oxygen advertised. Well, as soon as it starts fermenting, you don't want any more oxygen. <coughs> okay. You know, you do have to or should give the port and the yeast some oxygen to start because right. to build the cell walls you need that oxygen but after that you start creating alcohol no more oxygen got it yeah. keep uh, the other the other thing and I still am somewhat active in, in a homebrew club and, and there's a, a lot of knowledge for people so if somebody seriously wants to get into to brewing 
get a hold of a club. Mm -hmm. Our club is uh, Strange Brew. They're they're looking for people. Cool. Where does Strange Brew meet? Uh, they meet typically the I think it's the third Thursday of the month somewhere. Okay. And so if you contact me or somebody, we can get you in touch with whoever and come to a meeting. And you know, if you're a brewer, bring your beer and we'll tell you what's going on. Yeah, it's one of the things we've talked about on the podcast is making sure that again new homebrewers get involved and share bottles and taste bottles and take the advice. That's where you learn. Don't get defensive. I mean, that's just part of the way, part of how we learn, right? A couple of guys that got me started, boy, they they got tired of all my questions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I mean, and so I started brewing with my grandfather, um, and I was knee high, and then with my father, but out of a trash can and a piece of plexiglass on top of a trash can, and using bread yeast back in the eighties. Um, and great skill um, that I've passed on my son to make homemade root beer, right? But something that he can carry forward too. A um, lot of breweries opening up within Oregon, um, but we're starting to see some contracture where things are things are getting tight, and some of the stables are going away, like Bridgeport and That's crazy. rumblings about Windmere and what's going to happen with them with the purchase rights uh, in, like, I believe, in August in Bev has. The chance to purchase flat out with it. Um, and so what does that do to the market? The good news is Oregon's done a pretty good job about cultivating home brewers and so you have a lot of brewers kind of in the ranks waiting to step in and try some new stuff out there. I, I hear that there are a lot of applications for new breweries still which is a little surprising given the contraction. Um, I've talked to quite a few breweries and their, their sales are down. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah it's, it's getting tough out there. And it's not just the amount of breweries either, apparently. It's, uh, you know, the legalization of marijuana has put a dent, too. Yeah, I think it has, but I think everything's got to kind of sort out. There was a plateau. Uh, Kurt Widmer in the interview uh, in Oregon Live was talking a little bit about there was a plateau in the 90s, right? And everybody forgets about what that plateau was when we lost Portland Brewing and lost uh, what, Saxer and some of those guys. Um, and so we're going through another plateau at this point, and it'll settle out, and new stuff will happen. Never, never hurts to have a shake. Yeah, yeah it's kind of sad to see, but you know. Yeah, you lose icons, right? Yeah. I don't want to lose Bridgeport. Yeah, I, I, I bet <laughs> it's surprising. Yeah, right. <laughs> but they lost. They lost relevance, and I guess that's the thing that I look at. Um, breweries like yours, or breweries like uh, op- the new one that opened in downtown Beaverton, Ex Novo. Right, making that neighborhood connection, making a connection with the people around you, your distribution model is such that your I see a lot of your beers on wine shelves yep. at these wineries. And I mean that's how I found you originally. And so I think there's something to be said about that model of making that connection locally, but then people chase that dollar. They want to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So how big is too big for you? Well, I, I used to manage engineers for a living, and that's like herding cats. So, yeah. <laughs> I, really, I really didn't want to you know, have a bunch of employees to manage. I really didn't want to go for distribution. I just didn't want to have all the headaches. I wanted to focus on making the best beer I can, and, and I'm the limitation. Right. Nothing else is. So, I mean, that, I mean for me, and that, you look at it, a lot of people don't have that restraint, right? They, uh, they want to grow a bigger bigger brew system, and they want to get bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's that self-reflection to say, look, how big is too big, right? People don't ask themselves that. They're chasing that dollar. And I think, unfortunately, that's what we're seeing is some of these bigs um, kind of sold out at that point in chasing that dollar, but didn't, didn't realize, hey, we had it really good when we were a little bit smaller. So Yeah, I mean... Th- Brewing is, is tough. I mean, you know, I, I really take my hat off to a lot of breweries that make some nice beers and, and you know, with with what they have to work with, the time and the money, and, and it's tough. Yeah. I have so much luxury of, of, you know, buying the best of everything and taking as much time as it takes, and it's it's truly a luxury. And your beer is absolutely known for that. I mean, it's yeah. flat. It's very, very clean. It's, I mean, you know what you're getting when you get it. Um, so what do you have that's kind of outside of the box that you're brewing, that you're toying with? Um, I don't really have anything new right now. The, the German style Pilsner was my, my latest beer, and I'm real happy with that. Um, I just like the German style. It's clean and crisp and more refreshing to me anyway than the, the bow style or the Czech style. Okay. Um, You're not jumping into the old hazy no, slash no. fruit slash... No, fruit, you know... Uh, I've got a good friend that does a lot of test brewing and stuff, and we get together. And I still, even to this day, 
most of my beers, I tweak a little bit uh, as an experiment. Right. So we get together and judge the experiment. You know, it might be just changing from one field of Cascade to another field, or Oregon Cascade versus you know Washington or, or whatever, or just very small changes. It's crazy the difference in it. Because that's the engineering. You make yeah, yeah, one yeah. change and then measuring it out, right? Well, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing what you can learn after a couple thousand times. Right. Um, so anyway, we've played with you know making the East Coast IPA, but not hazy to see if you could have the same hop profile. And yeah, actually you can. It doesn't have to look like milk. <laughs> um, brutes um, are interesting. I think it's a really neat idea to try and really clean up the back end, but the ones I've had, something just isn't working for me. Yeah, so, the effervescence on some of them are I mean, just a little much, right? I think you just have to rebalance everything. Um, you know, when you dry it out that much, you've got to change your balance, you've got to change your hop load, possibly. Yeah. Uh, I tried one that, that Tom did here recently, and that was quite nice, actually. So mm. it's about the first brood I can say, yeah, that's it's got some that's promise. Strange. Yeah, and, and I think some of those styles that people are chasing and, and doing something that's just a bit different are helping keep this thing alive and helping... Well, there's so much to learn. Right. I mean, we are learning so much about hop chemistry. It's crazy. Right. You know, some of the, the growers in Washington, they, they've hired full-time chemists and amazing labs and trying to nail down all these compounds and I'll send them samples to, to evaluate and, you know, you know, try and correlate what you sense with what you can measure. Have you toyed at all with uh, wild fermentation at all? Or? No, I'm kind of a kind of a clean for yeah. <laughs> um, I've made ciders and I've made a little bit of wine and I've done natural ferments on those and they were fine. But. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I, we've talked a little bit about trying to get out to the garden, go check out what they've got going, because that's kind of uncommon, right? I mean, that's something you're not seeing a lot of within this state. Uh, well, Christian, I think, does a, a fair amount of wild ferments. Oh, really? At, uh, wolves and people. Oh, we haven't been over there at all. Yeah, I actually was on that. No, I saw. Good guy. Good. Yeah. Oh. So big open vats and doing wild fermentation. You know, I, I, I don't, I don't know that he has open vats, but I know he does wild ferments. I mean, he'll get okay. yeast off of a plum tree or something. And he's in the fruit. I guess. Okay. Yeah. So he's more farmhouse style. Okay. Great. I'm kind of at the other end of the spectrum. I, I try no, to you are very, very there. controlled. <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and again, it's a very, very German style that you're doing, which is. Yeah. Apparently, I must like the German styles, because a lot of my beers, even the Linda's Lager is kind of a, a, a European-style light lager. You know, I've got the Kolsch and the Pils and the Vienna. Yeah. Yeah? That's yeah. right. Have you made any stouts? Well, I make my porter, and I call it Paul's Porter because it's actually not to a style. Okay. It's to my style. It's the way okay. I like it. There's a lemon malt in that beer. Wow. So you've got big, bittersweet chocolate layers, and it's very rich, but has a very soft finish. <laughs> Technically, that's really tough to do. Wow. Um, boy, it's great for doing a reduction sauce, too. Oh, I bet it is. Yeah. Because <laughs> you, 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 you know, reduce it down with some meat flavors and stuff, and you don't have that harsh tannin or harsh bittering. Mm -hmm. Boy, it's great. Wow. want to try that out. So that Painted Lady did. We did a beer pairing years ago, and he made a reduction sauce for me. Well... Um, what else you got, Harry? So you did talk. You talked about yeast farming, and that that's I think one of the biggest challenges for home brewers is the the yeast strains that they're using. They go out and they buy it, and then it goes out with the rest of the trub and everything else. How do they harvest that from batch to batch? Um, if they're going to brew often enough, it's really quite easy to go ahead and harvest. If you if you rack the beer out of primary, off, let's say you're using a, a carboy, you rack the beer off in the bottom, you're going to have a nice layer of, of yeast. Yeah, you may have trube in there, depending. If you if you chill in place, you're going to have a lot less trube because the, the cold break and, and all the hot break is going to be left in the boil kettle. If you use a counterflow, you're going to have more trube, but still, I mean, Commercially, they do that, and they still harvest plenty of yeast. Um, but you need to feed it every two weeks if you're not going to use it. Mm -hmm. But home brewers have, you know, a lot of options to go get yeast now. Right. You know, really good yeast. Um, if it, you know, it, it can get expensive, you know, if you don't brew often, you need to go buy it. If you brew all the time, you can harvest yeast and put it in a cooler and use it next time. Uh, but but what I suggest to people, and I can't, I can't tell you how many. Experiments I did where you do 10 gallons and use different yeast for each five gallons and you compare them. It's mm -hmm. crazy. 
right? Yeast, yeast, yeast has so much influence. Change. Yeah. yeah, and that's fun, and that's how I decided what yeast I wanted to use. So what are you using for sample brew, sample batches? You're obviously not using one of your big fermenters, I'm guessing. So No, that's where if I if I want to do an experiment other than just, you know, doing tweaks, yeah. I have to do it. Oh, okay. Oh, perfect. Good. So that's okay. helpful. What else you got, Gary? That's it. That's all I've got. Great. Well, we appreciate the tour and uh, learning a little bit about the brewery here. So uh, Time to taste. Huh? So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Time to taste. So... So why don't we tell the listeners a little bit about where we can find your beers. I talked a little bit about the wineries. Um, they can go onto your website and check it out. Where else can they find your beers? Yeah, the, the website has the list of, uh, I try to keep it up to date, of where you can find it. Um, I'm, I'm kind of a niche market, so a lot of the places you'll find it are going to be local. Um, you know, in terms of buying bottle, you know, it'd be like, you know, Naps, Northwest Fresh Seafood, Social Goods Market, Barley and Vine, Red Hills Market. Uh, places like that, uh, you know, the Allison, Painted Lady, Joe Palmer, um, uh, Newburgh Indian. I mean, there's a lot of places around town, Carlton okay. Corner, um, that, that carry either keg or bottle. And then Portland Metro in the area? Um, hops, hops on Tap, John's Market. Uh, I did just get a delivery to John's, John's Market, so Good. I have it. But yeah, it's you know I'm a one-man show, so it's hard for me to deliver to a lot of places up in Portland. I did uh, one quick follow-up. So on delivery, so you're doing self-distribution and yes. locking the stuff in yourself, which huge amount of time. Yes. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the licensing that it takes. So obviously that's a huge step for a home brewer to kind of make, take that next step of hey, I'm brewing stuff and giving it out to my buddies and to the home brewer club. But now I actually want to start selling it or taking a keg and putting it in a growler shop. Yeah, I mean, that's, that that's, like? a step. that's a big step. That's a huge that's step, a right? Step. I mean, and I'm quite small to even afford the overhead of, of getting licensed and the liability insurance mm -hmm. and all the stuff it takes to stay licensed. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> you better be serious about yeah. it <laughs> if you're going to take that step. Yeah, I mean, that, and I think we've had those questions on the show where people have asked, it's like, yeah, but... I want to have my buddies over the growler shop, right, and and try my beer. Be I'm like, you people in your living room. It'd be cheaper <laughs> to give it away. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which you can do. Right. As I understand. Oh, you could just, what do you mean, give it away? Yeah, you can give it away. I mean, sure. Uh, yeah. And again, the, the, the establishment can't charge for it either. Right, right. right. So they've got to be able to just do it. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's the novelty is that, again. And, and the other thing I would encourage people to, to, to make sure that people are being honest with them. I mean, you really need to have your beers dialed in. Right, right. Yeah. I think that's part of the battle is that trying to elicit good, solid feedback, but I'm not necessarily sure you get that from a lot of friends that are yeah. drinking it or large group pet gatherings. Um, we're both very good about being honest with each other's beers, but that's what a homebrew club is about, right? Yeah, a homebrew club is, is great because, I mean, they'll be brutally honest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they will. So good. Well, again, thanks for your time, and uh, let's sample some beers. Yeah, All right. sounds good. Cheers. Thanks. All right, that was our interview with Paul from Long Brewing. Yeah, if you ever get the chance um, to go out and actually tour the brewery or, or just get to talk to Paul, uh, it, it's by appointment only. You can do it by email. You can do it um, by phone. But all that contact information is on his website, longbrewing.com, uh, I believe it is. But just an amazing uh, guy to talk to. He's real down to earth, uh, pretty humble guy. And then just the amazing amount of knowledge that this guy has and the history that he has with hops and everything else is just, it's mind blowing. Yeah, the guy. Um First of all, well done on getting the interview. Um, but I haven't felt <laughs> dumb <laughs> dumb ever in the brewing world. I mean, I've been brewing for a long time. It's pretty basic stuff. I was telling Debbie, I'm like, I came home and kind of sat on the couch. And she's like, so how'd the interview go? Did you have fun? And I'm like, yeah, I had fun. Um, but I felt like an idiot the whole time. <laughs> so, yeah, pa Paul's got the equivalent of like a double PhD to brewing. It's pretty disgusting. Well, and as we found out after, right, he actually grew up, he's third or fourth generation hop farmer. Yeah, third generation hop farmer. Yeah, ridiculous. The guy's been in the industry. He pulled out some fresh hops out of his freezer, ground them up in his hand, didn't look at what they were, smelled ground them up them. in his hand, smelled them. And said, oh, yeah, that's from Plot 11 on this particular farm. 
like knows exactly where the plot is where hops were grown. Yeah, it's it's his senses are are heightened to just a just most amazing ability of of being able to do that. He can also smell hops and beers. You can smell and tell you you know what variety of hops in yep. the beer itself. Um, he can taste the tannins. He can tell you what malts you were using. I mean, it's just it's. It's amazing how this guy's senses have been tuned to the beer industry. So his beers are, again, available around the Portland metro area, random places. You actually find him out in Newburgh in the wineries quite often because that's his business model is to have beers sold there for those that don't want to have wine with their spouses and want to drink beer. So Yeah, and if you want to find him, um, he was saying he, he does... He tries to do a really good job of keeping the website updated on where to find them. Uh, so just go to that Long Brewing uh, website, and you should be able to find a lot of the different places that he does self-distribute to. So fantastic place. Thanks, Gary, for setting that up. Paul, awesome. Thank you for uh, teaching us, schooling us, allowing us to taste your fine beverages and to purchase such bever- beverages. Yes. And... Uh, we will definitely be in touch and back. So definitely, listeners, go check out Paul from Long Brewing. So as we uh, left there, we were heading back down Bell Road, and we were like, hey, I wonder if we should uh, head over to Wolves and People, which is supposedly down the hill from Paul's. And I was like, meh, nah, let's just go back, and we're going to have a fire and dinner later. And next thing I know, the steering wheel just turned right on its own. And we ended up at a farmhouse down 99W at a place called Wolves and People. So we both have driven by the sign on 99W and saw it and just never thought to really stop by. I actually belong to a winery that's close and um, have, have driven by it a bunch, but decided to stop this time and i am so glad so glad that we stopped uh farmhouse barn tulips hazelnuts mountains sun and fantastic beer so let's go ahead and give that listen we uh, did a great interview started off with kevin and then moved into the owner who just like happened to walk up and jumped into the middle of the interview to talk a little bit about uh, the brewery. Yeah. So here's Wolves and People. Hi, Jason from the Tim Beers here. I am uh, with Kevin here at Wolves and People Brewing. So uh, we were up visiting Paul up at Long Brewing, and he's like, you need to go check out uh, Wolves and People. So uh, had a great time with Paul, and I'm glad we stopped by here because it's a gorgeous drive to get into this place. place. Yeah. What can you tell us about uh, Wolves and People? So this uh, farmhouse brewery, has been around since May 2016. We are inhibiting this space of uh, an old 1912 Craftsman barn. Uh, it's a working filbert farm, about 21 and a half acres. We do mostly wild inoculated beers, a lot of things that sit in barrel. Uh, our kind of mantra is a wild and tame, so therefore the wild stuff, the, the yeast from the property here, the tame things sitting stainless, a lot of clean stuff as well. Um, the name actually came from when Christian, the owner, was growing up on this property. They, they were messing around in the, in the fields playing a game called Wolves and People. It's kind of like Sharks and Minnow. It's a game of tag. So tell me about, I love the story that you're telling us about the barn itself, mm-hmm. right? So goes back to the founder of Newburgh. Yep, absolutely. Right? So talk to me a little bit about that and the barn. You got some Smithsonian art stuff mm-hmm. going on upstairs. Yeah, so um, this the land that we sit on right now is uh, was founded or first settled by a name a guy by the name of Sebastian. Uh, he came from the Norberg region of North Germany. Okay. Um, he went on to be the, the town of Newburgh's first postman. So our kind of our flagship beer, our poppy spell ale is called Postman. Right. And... He sold this uh, this property off to a couple. Uh, the, the man came from Pennsylvania. The woman was here in Oregon. The the barn that we sit in now was called Oravania Farm. Okay. Um, they pr- planted the first rows of filbert trees in the 20s. Okay. Um, after that, it was sold off to the Benedetti families in the 60s. This Sweet. Is this is the owner you were telling me about? Hey, Jason from the Tim Beers. So we're podcasters on beer and... We're up with Paul up there at uh, Long Brewing doing a tour. Perfect. 
in an interview, and he's like, you got to go check these guys out. So yeah. makes great beer. Yeah, no, awesome. So yeah, we're just doing a quick interview because we're like Christian's the the podcast guy. I listened to some, and I've been on a couple. It's a cool format. Yeah, it's different. It introduces people. It's our third year on the podcast, and so we're trying to get out and view a lot more brewers, breweries. So, but yeah, glad we're out here. So he's telling us a little bit about the barn and some crazy art you've got upstairs. Oh, nice. Yeah, you're in good hands with Kevin too. He's uh, he's a great storyteller. Uh, it's you know being being here is amazing. This barn feels like it has a life of its own. It's been here a hundred years. It's had all these different uh, amazing incarnations as a. A place to, um, you know, store horses, to making wine barrels, to being an art studio, to being, uh, you know, all these different, you know, beautiful projects, especially preceding us a winery, uh, which really inspired me. So, uh, you know, being in here really, we feel the energy of this place. It's got a good, a good vibe to it. A lot of good creative work has gone on in here over the last century. And uh, it's inspiring just to see the building when we walk up to it. And then inside, you know, it's amazing. It has no straight lines anywhere. It's, you know, full of weird old growth. Yeah, a little rough um, around the edges. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that gives it its charm, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so, it's yeah, it's wonderful to, to have the opportunity to do something in the barn. And when I was a kid, we farmed hazelnuts here on the farm. And uh, being inside here meant uh, the, the filberts were... Coming in where the brew house now is now to be washed and sorted, and then where literally where we're sitting now was a filbert dryer. So up to the top level of the barn, the, the filberts traveled up and then were dried, multi-level style, and then out into the back room. And it was just uh, an amazing kind of Rube Goldberg contraption that, uh, as a kid, I loved seeing in action and with my family working here. So it brings back a lot of good memories for us to be here and see all the uh, a new kind of activity in here, and then think, thinking back to the old days too. So farmhouse, you guys chose to go with farmhouse style ales, um, totally different from what most people are doing, right? So probably the most famous right now is Ale Apotherky and and Degard are going farmhouse and kind of that natural fermentation. Why did you guys choose farmhouse ales? Obviously, we're in a barn, right? It's a farm, but was that the inspiration? Uh, well, you know, I loved the farmhouse ales that I tried traveling in Europe after college, okay. and I was inspired by the fact that someone could take an old building and. Um, brew with whatever they had or brew with something in the area. I mean, I think that's kind of the, the root of farmhouse. It's more of an approach than right. it is a, a style, any one style, more of a, a mood or an attitude about brewing. Um, uh, I don't know. What do you think, Kevin? I was just going to say, I think the, the farmhouse appeal, it, uh, it portrays such an authenticity mm-hmm. that you don't necessarily get um, at you know, the big the big breweries that are pushing out a lot of beer, pumping things out, keeping things the same, the standard every single time. Those are great, of course, but you know, there's a lot of uh, nuance and complexity to the beers that we make here. Mm-hmm. Um, when beers come out of barrels, they're not always the same each and every time, but you know, you kind of roll with it and make something new or better out of it each time. Yeah, perfect segue because, I mean, that's kind of our observation as Bridgeport and rumors of other large breweries starting to look at closing towards the end of the year. I mean, there's a couple big ones that are in the rumor mill, but they've lost relevance with their community. And so I love your comment about how do you connect with the with the community around you and use the things that are in the community to, again, make good beer or make good wine or whatever it may be. And that is farmhouse, right? That is what Europe's about. I'm going to Europe for two weeks in a couple months here. And, and that is that connection of the local brewer in the town using stuff that's in the town to make the beer and sell the beer to the people there. So Absolutely. I love what you guys are doing here. I think, what do I have here? The Sebastian cherry? Sebastian cherry, yep. Yeah, fantastic. Super tart. So you're using real fruit? Yeah, absolutely. It's Montmorency cherries. They're uh, grown down near Ricreal. Okay. And uh, they have a, a wonderful pie spice kind of note, like a, a bit of a cinnamony and almondy kind of note. Um, there's no pit. Uh, in the in the fruit, but um, it does have a, a wonderful almondy kind of character, um, and uh, so it makes it great for baking and really nice for brewing too. Cool. And then, are you doing natural fermentation with the fruit itself, uh, with the cherries? So yeah, the beers re-enter fermentation uh, while in oak. So anywhere from twelve to sixteen months, the the, the barrels are coming around where we want, and then we select the fruit, go in straight to the barrel, or sometimes we rack the the uh, liquid to steal with the with the cherries or with, you know peach blackberry what have you um, I kind of prefer the latter um, gives you a tiny bit more control and less ingress of oxygen but uh, it does enter a refermentation that tends to go you know anywhere from you know uh, five days to twenty days but 
all those new sugars being introduced uh, awaken the wild yeasts, and off it goes. And sometimes they're introducing wild yeasts as well, and that, that can be a, a little dicey, but, you know, yeah. but it's yeah. kind of cool. I mean, if, sometimes that's that's the beauty of it. You know, we take precautions to make sure we're not introducing any, like, just straight-up dirt, um, you know, or, you know, anything that could mess with the beer. Not that dirt would, but you know what I'm saying? Like, no, yeah. but that's where you get a lot of funk, right? And so a lot... That's what makes something kind of iconic is that funkiness to it, um, and and you kind of want that. I mean, each beer is going to be a little bit different, and that's what you see typically in Belgium, and that's what you see in some in France, is those monastery type beers that use open air fermentation, and they've done this for centuries, right? None of their beers are same; they're very similar from year to year, but there's always a little bit of funkiness that's different. Yeah, and I, th- um, I think another interesting point that he brought up <coughs> was that the time frame of making these beers. It's not a short crank beers out in a couple weeks type of process. This is a a month to two months to three months to four month type process for you to to get what you're going for. And the question I've got for you on that is as far as keeping beers on tap, you've got to be looking way forward on what your fermentation processes are, what's coming up next, and what you're doing. How do you stay on top of that and not miss a beat? You know, we're always learning, and um, it's, it's uh, you know, we kind of are guided by our own experiences here, and, you know, we've seen demand uh, rising over time. Uh, so we just try to especially um, not let off the gas in the middle of winter when, you know, um, the tap room is quiet. It's a good time for us to brew, brew, brew. Um, but, you know, it ebbs and flows, and we just try to be flexible and, you know, find a, find our rhythm. Um, as we go into the summer, there's a lot more draft beer being poured, so um, we're probably making more quicker turn beers. But our quickest turn beer at this point is almost 30 days, uh, and that is, um, that's, pretty, that's pretty slow compared to our average brew pub. So right. um, really take the time to make it special. The, the other thing I'm noticing about the brewery is, is just what was brought up earlier was the ambiance itself. The thing that, that strikes me is just amazing and, and blows my mind is you walk through these big barn doors, and the first thing that you see is the brewing equipment. It's not hidden. It's not in some back room behind the door, sealed off so the public doesn't get to see it. There, there's these big, beautiful copper mash tons uh, right up front, and then you've got the barrels all racked out. Um, and and stored and ready to go. But but you can literally see what's going on at the brewery versus it being hidden somewhere, which I I love that. It's amazing. Yeah, so why copper? I see the first one that we walk in, and we see a beautiful copper letter ton there, so... Uh, copper is a traditional metal for brewing equipment going back like six, eight hundred years. Um, it was readily available or more readily available in mines. It's malleable. It's easy to pound and shape. Um, but also, uh, copper sheds positive ions into liquid that help uh, with the uh, resolution of sulfur compounds. So uh, sulfur is a pretty unpleasant um, compound in certain concentrations. So brewers always want a certain amount of sulfur in their beer. Now, the so copper you see on our brew house is just cladding on the outside. It's just purely decorative, but um, it speaks to that tradition, whereas our uh, lines coming in from our well are copper. So all of our brewing water passes through along uh, segments of copper lines before we brew with it. But other than the, the copper pipe touching the water, we don't do any additions whatsoever of minerals or salts to our beer, to our brewing water. We don't adjust it. Um, that's another farmhouse approach. Like, you know, we're, we're going to take that water and use it, and, and luckily it's really nice water, nice and soft. Yeah. High nice. silica content, so it's nice mouthfeel. Perfect. Great. Well, I appreciate your time. Thank you, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for uh, allowing us to come out and try some good beer here. So, Absolutely. Um, where to next? I think we're, we're pretty good now, and we're going to a barbecue shortly after this. So we'll have a few more of your beers. Try them out. Uh, we'll record tomorrow and hopefully get more people pointed this way because this place is fantastic, man. Thanks so much for coming. Yeah, happy trails. Hope everyone uh, enjoys the show. All right. Wolves and people, Christian and the very nervous Kevin. <laughs> Funny thing is, is before Kevin was on mic, um, he had no issues. Like, we had no intention of doing an interview there. No. And then Kevin's like, hey, what, do you, what beer do you guys want? And we're like, hey, it's our first time here. Tell us what you're, what you're famous for. He rattles off like a 10-minute diatribe on the brewery, 
on what's the going on upstairs. The history of the land, everything. It was amazing. We didn't even say we were with the podcast. And he just like, just rattling it off. As soon as we said we were on the podcast, we wanted to do an interview. The guy was all nerves. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> Poor guy. He did good, though. So, And then Christian's a natural dude. Oh, yeah. Just rattling off, talking about art. You can see that creative side in him. Yep. So um, there I had a beer called, my first beer was called Sebastian Cherry. And it was a farmhouse uh, cherry tart beer made with uh, cherries from, I believe, Rick Rial. All their uh, ingredients are sourced, as Christian was saying, uh, fairly locally. Right. And uh, it was ridiculous. Ridiculous, ridiculous, good and tart. And I'm not a sour beer guy, and it was good. Definitely had a very tart cherry flavor to it. It was uh, really good beer. Yep. And then you had a full glass of something there, um, and I believe was it Postman? No, I didn't. Uh, didn't do Postman until I think the very, very end. Um, I'd have to look at their beer list again. Vale, that's what you had. That's yours right there. Yeah, Vale. So. And that was uh, was a regular Saison type farmhouse. You know, by by that time, I wasn't even paying attention to what I was drinking. Yeah, so I was just enjoying the moment. It's a beer de gard, and uh, yeah, it's a fantastic beer. Um, we tried we tried their board. I mean, believe it or not, we tried their accidental beer, the raw coffee rye. Um, pure accident on how they made that beer. They'll never be able to reproduce it. They can try, but I, I don't think they'll ever ever get the exact recipe down. No, I mean, you listen to the story on what they did with that. Yeah. Holy God. Um, very high alcohol by volume beer. Yeah. Uh, that tastes incredibly smooth. Yeah. Uh, there, there's not a high alcohol bite to it at all. Not a huge coffee bite to it. A very subtle yeah, coffee just bite. Very, very smooth beer altogether. Locally roasted beans. Um, yeah, great stuff. So... Um, awesome setting. We sat outside, uh, picnic tables overlooking the farm in the Willamette Valley there. Um, beautiful barn. Again, doors from Rainier Brewery. Uh, wood was like repurposed from the old original Rainier Brewery. So, again, fantastic place. Totally a surprise. Thanks for the recommendation by Paul. Yeah. Um, and then thanks for the hospitality to uh, Christian and Kevin because the place yeah. is lit. We'll be Definitely. back. Great outdoor seating, too. Yep. So let's take a quick break. We'll refill our glasses full of some heavy, heavy beer. No, we won't. So. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're still nursing these bourbon counties. <laughs> um, and uh, we'll come back very shortly and talk a little bit about hops because I am getting in the hop growing mood. Oh, boy. Tim Deers. Before it happened, the people didn't know. They thought they had a choice. Then, revolution. The world's gold medal winning IPA was crafted by Oregon's oldest microbrewery, Bridgeport Brewing. When the people tasted what they'd been missing, the delicious taste of handcrafted ales infused with fresh local hops brewed under the watchful eye of the passionate Bridgeport brewmasters, the Northwest was finally awakened to a blend of five hop varieties, and there was no turning back. Was it that Portland's different kind of people demanded a different kind of beer? Or that our different kind of beer demanded a different kind of people? We may never know. But what we do know is this revolution was not a trend. It's our way of life to the bitter end. Bridgeport Brewing Company. Long live Birvana. All right. Well, Bridgeport Brewing, no longer. Nope. Rest in peace, Bridgeport. R.I.P. Yeah, I found that old ditty, that little IPA commercial. Yeah. Kind of cool. A lot of history. Flashback. <laughs> what I liked about it is it talked about five different varieties of hops. Yes. So if you could use only, let's say, three hop varieties for the rest of your life, what would you use? That's a hard question. Because that's really going to dictate what beer you actually are making. Yeah, but you got a lot of a lot of things you can do right? with three different varieties. Well, sure, but you almost have to choose a beer style before you can figure out which three hops you're really going to use for the rest of your life. So you know that we use Cascade quite often. Yep. Yep. 
So Cascade for me is kind of a staple. Um, I use Centennial from time to time, which can be interchanged with Cascade, kind of, if you wink sideways. Um, <laughs> and then I like Mount Hood, and I like the little citrusy feel of the Mount Hood hops. Yeah. So I have a Cascade hop vine that I bought last year. Right. And then I bought two hop poles. So they're 10-foot poles. And then I bought today a Mount Hood hop vine. Oh, no. So now I have two vines. Does Debbie know? Mm, I don't think she knows about the second one. As soon as you just said, "Mm, I'm pretty sure she doesn't know about the second one. Well, the reason I hesitate is today we were talking, and she actually saved me a pot because we got a bunch of new pottery for her stuff. And she put the second pot by the second hop pole. So she, I think, fundamentally knows. Yeah. But, yeah, we have Mount Hop, Mount Hood. Mount Hood. And Cascades. Interesting. So, and we know that we'll get a couple pounds, probably, of stuff before it's wet. Right. right? I mean, before it's dried out, um, of hop flour. So, yeah, we'll have to see how this thing goes. Of course, I grew hops at my old place, and I believe I had nuggets and... I think I just had nuggets, but... The hop yeah. hop vines went like freaking crazy, <laughs> so I was banned from hop growing at my house because they were going crazy. Because they were too too prolific. Yeah, but now I'm just going to put them in pots because they can't possibly go wrong with pots. Yeah, there so, was your there's your first thought process mistake, right? Oh, nothing can go wrong here. I'm containing it until they shoot out the bottom out of the air <laughs> <Yeah>. holes and <laughs> blows up the pod. Yeah, keeps well, going. Well, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so, with that, that got me thinking today because I'm looking at the hop varieties, the gardener's choice, and a lot of the gardening places have hops. Yeah, a lot of people grow them for ornamental reasons. Um, hops have actually some therapeutic benefit in that uh, they can be used as a sedative as well. While you yawn there. Yeah. So, um, put me to sleep. Yeah. So, um, of course, we're growing them for beer. And it'd be awesome to be able to fresh hop our beer with my own hops. That would be cool. Yeah. So, um, so I'm standing there looking at the varietals. I'm like, and then looking at a hop table going, all right, so Centennial, Cascade are closely linked. Um, I don't want Nugget because that was one of the varietals there. Chinook was there, and then Mount Hood. And I'm like, all right, so Mount Hood's very different than Cascade and Centennial. Right. So that's what I'm going. So we'll have to see how this goes. That'll be interesting. It will be interesting. So, but I've pulled a, off the Craft Brew Channel, a little interview on what are hops, and it kind of walks you through the different varietals. So I figured this would be a good way to close out the podcast tonight. Talking about hops and what they do for beer and what the different varietals are. Yeah. So here is a little ditty on hops from the Craft Brew Channel. Hops. Glorious hops. A summertime flower and a long-lost cousin of cannabis. First added as a preservative for their natural oils, they're now the dominant flavor in all kinds of beers. In a brewer's hands, they're the harbinger of bitterness and the bringer of citrus. And those big aromas and flavors are largely responsible for the growth of modern beer as we know it. But they really all owe it to one variety, the mother hop, if you will, and that's SARS. I'm not talking about SARS as in the thing that was going to wipe out the entire human race a couple of years ago. I'm talking about SARS as in the hop, which is made famous uh, in Pilsner-style beers. Uh, So here we are in the hop farms. You can see endless, endless hops. You'd be amazed how many hops need to go into a beer, particularly a very heavy hop beer like an IPA can have kilograms and kilograms of the stuff at every point of the brew. Four basic ingredients make up beer. Water to make it wet, malt to give it sugar, yeast to turn those sugars into alcohol, and hops, which make it bitter. Hops were used sparingly when first discovered. They kept beers fresh for longer, famously keeping British beers tasting good while they were shipped out to soldiers in India. Their properties for adding flavour and aroma only really became popular when big, bold American hops like Cascade started being used in pale ales in the 1980s. Thank you very much, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. But all these hops were super versions, born from interbreeding old-school British, German, and Czech hops. But basically, hops are just flowers. These are called cones. And what happens is, they're picked every year, uh, and then dried and sent out to the brewers. And when you dry it, you concentrate the, the aromas that are in it. So inside all these cones are 
oils uh, called alpha acids. Uh, and that's what makes a beer have a really bitter finish at the end. So as well as flavours, you're adding the bitterness to the beer that cuts through. Uh, and that bitterness varies from different varieties. So you can have a pop with a very low alpha acid, which could be about maybe four, maybe five percent. We can go all the way up to things like Chinook, uh, these big, big American hops, uh, which are about 15 percent. And adding those ramps up what's called the IBU, the International Bittering Unit. Uh, and that's a measurement of how bitter a beer is. Now for an IPA, that's probably going to be about 70 to 80. Uh, for something uh, like a Pilsner, it's going to be down at about 35, 40, along with pails. And the really, really sort of the, the, the macro lagers go all the way down to 7 to 10, which is probably less than humans can actually perceive. So things like Budweiser are not very bitter at all because they're meant to be drunk quickly so that no one realises that you're drinking it. So there's loads of points in the brewing process where you can add hops. The first addition is always at the start of the boil. So you've got your wort, where you've extracted the sugars from the malt, and you add your hops at the start of that, and that's called the bittering addition. And that's where you're adding bitterness to the beer. So the amount of flavours that come out of that aren't huge. So you just need to pick your alpha acids very carefully to get the right amount of bitterness. You can then add it at the end of the boil, and usually you have a couple of additions depending on what flavours you want to add. So it's at this point that you'd add your aromatic addition. So you get all of the aromas, all of the flavours from the hops usually about five, maybe 10 minutes before the end of the boil. And it's here where hops get really interesting. While 40 years ago in the UK, pretty much all beers smelt of caramel and toast, now things are much more tropical. Cascade adds a grapefruity note, Amarillo gives an orange pith bitterness, Citra a massive pine and mango scent, while the British Goldings is smoother, spicier and subtly citrusy. And there's one technique to make all these aromas really shine. Another point where you can add hops is dry hopping. This is really fashionable at the moment, particularly in IPAs, American IPAs, because it adds so much aroma, but pretty much no bitterness to the beer. And you get these massive hits of like mango, uh, sometimes orange pith, uh, passion fruit, all those things. And obviously pine is the most famous one. That all comes from the dry hopping. And the amount of, they, they put enough hops in there to probably kill a man on the big brews. That's how much they need to put in to get that amazing hit. So when you're using hops, it's a very expensive process. Uh, and that's why the bigger breweries don't do it so much and the smaller ones want to do it because that's where so much of the flavor is. Now SARS is a relatively subtle hop, but still, there's loads of tang, loads of lemon, a little bit of kind of apple -y freshness as well, um, which really helps cut through the very malty beers. SARS is known as a noble hop, which is a bit of a loose term. Basically, it's an old world hop with low alpha acid bitterness, but lots and lots of aroma. Lagers produced in the Czech Republic are famous for having huge amounts of flavour and aroma without the big bitter finishes of modern IPA styles. They may be more subtle, but to me that only makes them more beautiful. Without such wonderful mother and noble hops, we'd still be stuck drinking boring bitters and, well, mild milds. But good old humulus lupulus along with some heroic farmers and brewers have saved us from mediocrity and got us all addicted to big, bitter, aromatic beers. Alright, that was the little about hops from the Craft Brew Channel. It's there amazing what those little things are. You know they're related <laughs> to cannabis? Yeah, that's crazy, huh? Kinda. They kind of grow like weeds. They kind of look like weed. <laughs> no. Have you ever smoked a hop? Nope. Nope, never. Never. Have you ever sniffed a hop? Yes. Yeah, I saw you the other yeah. day at Long Brewing. Did it at Long Brewing. I've done it at a couple brewery tours. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I like to take hop flowers and put them in my gum like a shaw. <laughs> Chew them. <laughs> <laughs> then they get really nauseous. Yuck. <laughs> well, that uh, is kind of all I've got planned out for tonight. What about you? You got anything that's for the go of the order? No. Uh, that that's pretty much the extent of what we had. We wanted to bring you some really good interviews of uh, locational breweries that are close in. And uh, just a little bit of knowledge piece from them, uh, as well as some additional knowledge bits. And uh, that's about all. Yep. All right. Well, with that, I guess, buddy, uh, Wednesday Night Soccer is coming up this Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. on the baseball field. We'll play there once again. Are we're we not... doing it back-to-back? -back? Heck, yeah. I'm not alternating. All right. I think what we're going to do is run it sideways, so lengthwise versus widthwise. Gotcha. Yeah. So that'll uh, alternate it out. And 
we'll go from there. But I'm going to be serving up my amber ale to the kids. Oh, boy. So we'll burn through that, I'm sure, pretty well. Yeah, pretty much. And then we have a surprise beer for the kids, too. <laughs> surprise! I love it. Yep, it's going to be a good surprise. So all you listeners, come join us at Wednesday Night Soccer, Summer Lake Park, and Tigard. If you can make it, all ages, all skills, if you've never played before, come on out and join us. It's a good time. 5.30. 5.30, Summer Lake Park. All right, buddy. Will you take care? Have a good week. All right. You do the same. Huge shout out to Paul. Thanks for allowing the tour and the good brews. Christian and Kevin, awesome from Wolves and People. Yes. Thank you for the Farmhouse Ales and introducing uh, the listeners to your brewery. So fantastic. And uh, future breweries, we're coming at you, baby. Coming to you soon. We're coming to you soon. Tim Beers. Tim Beers. <laughs>